turn now to God's Word, and you can see in your bulletin this morning that we're turning to 2 Samuel chapter 23. We just spent quite a few weeks making our way through chapter 22, that long, glorious poem of David, almost identical to Psalm 18, included in 2 Samuel, that poem of praise to God because God had delivered him over and over again. That was chapter 22. This morning we're going to press on, going to make our way into chapter 23. So we're going to make our way from one very long poem to one that's a whole lot shorter, which is why we're going to cover this one in one Sunday and not say five. So listen now to God's word. This is 2 Samuel 23. Beginning at verse 1. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear And they are utterly consumed with fire. This is the word of our God. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. For these stirring images, but also chilling warnings. And we would lean in now to hear your voice saying all of these things to us. We would not pick and choose what we would prefer to hear, but we would lean in and listen to your voice, all that you have to say. We go back almost to the beginning of 1 Samuel, and we say with the boy Samuel, Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It is not uncommon when you get word that somebody has died. It's not uncommon. In fact, I'd say it's perfectly natural that you can find yourself wondering... What were their last words? If it was even possible for them to gather their thoughts in those moments and express those thoughts to others, what were their last words? What did they want to leave people with? 
And there are moments like that in the Bible, quite a few of them actually, moments in which somebody has a sense that the sun is setting and there are actions they want to take that are specially meaningful. There are words that they want to say that they know will represent a kind of lasting legacy when they're gone. There are stories like that in the Bible over and over again. Jacob blessing his sons before he dies. Moses preparing the people for life in the land before he dies because he's not going to go into the land with them. Joshua, not too long after that, before he dies, he has some parting words. Simeon, when he holds the baby Jesus and says, I can go now. Jesus' own farewell discourse in the Gospel of John. The Apostle Paul, when he writes to Timothy one last time, and he has a sense that he won't be writing him again. So it's, it's in the Bible, it, it's common in our own experience. You can find yourself wondering, what, what were their last words? What did they want to leave people with? Be, because those are powerful moments. And it's as if people are listening for what you've got to say. What, what impression did they want to make with that power? What legacy did they want to leave behind? Well, our passage this morning is like that. The last words of David. That doesn't mean that they were necessarily the very last words that David spoke on earth. No, these are the last words of David in the sense that they represent his his last, his parting, enduring, poetic legacy left to the people of God after him. In that sense, these can be billed as the last words of David. And an important legacy it is. After everything David's been through, and it's been quite a lot, after all of his highs and lows, victories and defeats, hopes and promises, sin and obedience, at the end of his life, he leaves behind these words. And what is their theme? What is this legacy that David, one of the shining lights in the whole of the Bible, what's the theme that he wants to impart as he prepares to part? It's kingship. It's the idea of covenant kingship before God and thanks to God. What that kingship is and what it ought to be. That, among other things, is David's gift, these words, this legacy. So let's take a look. Notice how this whole passage is introduced right there in verse 1. Take a look at verse 1 again. And I, I think I've found space to print the whole thing there in your bulletin. I, I, I try to fit some scripture in the bulletin without reducing or resorting to, say, a two-point font. But I think I managed to fit it all in there in such a way that you can actually read it. Take a look at verse 1. Now, these are the last words of David, 
the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. So these words are an oracle. Even that word is stirring and and gets your attention. An oracle, an official and authoritative pronouncement on David's part. So what he's about to say is introduced as an oracle. And David himself, though we know him pretty well at this point, David himself is introduced again. What are we told about him here? Well, he's the son of Jesse, and he's the man who was raised on high. That's an interesting pairing, isn't it? Reminds us of what he was, how he started, and what he became. Started out in a place of such lowliness, and God, as it were, reached down, took that shepherd boy, the son of Jesse, the most unlikely of the sons of Jesse, and raised him on high. We're also told this, he is the anointed of the God of Jacob. And we saw that quite a while back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when Samuel anointed David to be the next king after Saul. And then finally this, we're also told, I love this phrase, he is the sweet psalmist of Israel. David was was a poet, he was a songwriter. Who, who gave sweet words, beautiful words of beauty and truth and power to the people of God, gave those words to us. Because here we are in July of 2022, listening to his sweet poetry as the very word of God. So, the word that he's about to speak is introduced. Oh, it's an oracle. David himself is introduced in all of these different ways. And then look at verse 2, verses 2 and 3. This is quite a claim. David is mindful of the fact that these words that he's leaving behind as a legacy, they are not just his own words. You know, a lot of people write words that last for one reason or another, for better or for worse. David is mindful of the fact that his words are going to last because ultimately they're not just his. Look at verse 2. He says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. So that's David's way of, of saying, Yes, these words aren't just mine. These are the very words of God. God has spoken to me so that as I speak, God speaks through me. This oracle is not only Davidic, it is also divine. So after all of that, verses 1, 2, and 3, we are really leaning in. I mean, we're on the edge of our seats. So what's this word that we've been readied for? Look at verse 3. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Now, remember, this is poetry. And poetry in Hebrew, 
Just like in English, it isn't entirely straightforward. There are nuances, there are images, there are challenges, even in translating these words, and this passage is no exception to that. Another translator gives the passage to us this way. Quote, A ruler over humans, a righteous one, a ruler with the awe of God, is like the light of daybreak as sun rises, daybreak without clouds, by dint of brightness, by dint of rain, the herbage of earth. So that's how another translator puts it. But it's helpful just to hear it like that. There's something impressionistic about it. It's as if you're looking out on this beautiful scene. It's this mixture of, of light and rain and green. The basic idea is clear enough. Here's what kingship can and ought to be. Marked by righteousness and marked by the fear of God. And both of those dimensions matter. There's the horizontal and the vertical dimensions. Ideal kingship in terms of the way the king relates to his subjects, right, the horizontal, but also the way that he reigns in the sight of God and conducts himself in the fear of God. So there's that vertical dimension as well. He's to be just in his rule over men, the horizontal, and he's to be reverent, he's to be humble because he knows his place before God. That's the vertical So David says, that's what kingship ought to be. And and David says, when you've got a king like that, oh, that's the best. Morning light, cloudless sky, sun shining, brightness with rain together bringing growth, bringing life. When you've got a king like that, oh, that's the best. All is as it should be. There's a a kind of wholeness, a kind of harmony to this. It's sweet and it's warm and it's lush. So David relays this word by the very Spirit of God about ideal kingship. And then in the next breath, he marvels. Because he knows where he stands in relationship to all of this. He sees himself. David, son of Jesse, once a shepherd boy, and now the king, he sees himself in the light of what he's just said. Because what does he say next? He says, for does not my house stand so with God? He's just painted this beautiful picture of ideal kingship, and then he says, that's my house. God has made my house, in other words, my lineage, My sons and me after me to be a kingly line like that. And he stands amazed that he, David and his sons after him, should stand out in the world as the model of the kind of kingship that he's just described. And what's more, he knows that that's true of him and of his house. Because God has condescended to make it so. This didn't just happen. Because what does he say next? He says, God has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. You see that? God has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. There, David is pointing us back 
to one of the highest peaks in the whole of the Bible mountainscape, which is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Remember that? David had this idea that he was going to have a temple built for God in Jerusalem. And through the prophet Nathan, God says to him, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you one. I'm going to establish your line to be a kingly line before me forever. And and here, at the end of his life, as David pens these words that will be his legacy, he remembers that. Of course he does. How could he forget? So all these pieces are starting to, to fit together here. You see, it's not just David's character. It's also his covenant. It's not just his character before God. It's also his covenant with God. David is a godly ruler character only because God has dealt graciously with him in such a way as to make him that kind of ruler. Covenant. And so David can be confident in God. And he is. You know, there's always a kind of confidence that's reflected when somebody starts asking rhetorical questions and they don't have to worry that an answer will come back that contradicts them. And David, notice he starts asking questions. He says, for will God not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? In other words, will my covenant God ever fail to save me, to satisfy me? No, he will not. Of course he won't. He will cause those very realities to sprout up as from the ground. So that gets us through to verse 5. And how... Beautiful and heartening is all of that. As I said, you can almost picture the, the lush green of the growth thanks to the sun and the rain that have bathed the ground. And we might want to stop there. End of verse 5. Stop. Lush green. But we won't. David doesn't. We won't either. Look at verses 6 and 7. Because David keeps going, and now he's using, well, garden imagery, but of a very different sort. Look at verse 6. Here's the contrast. But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear... And they are utterly consumed with fire. So end the last words of David. So here's another kind, a very different kind of growth in verses 6 and 7. Worthless men who are themselves like thorns that ought to be just cast away and burned. Worthless men. Now we need to be clear, because I know that very word, worthless, especially to describe a human being as worthless, that's jarring. So we need to get clear here. It is true that every man and woman and child has worth, has value and significance as a creature made by God, especially as a creature made in the image of God, bearing the divine image. There is an intrinsic worth 
to human life. So what does David mean when he's talking about some people as being worthless? Well, remember the context here. Remember what David's talking about, what David has just said about himself. David's been saying his very own house embodies ideal kingship thanks to God's condescending covenant mercy. In other words, the contrast here between the ideal and the way he embodies it and what he's describing here at the end, the the contrast has to do with the purposes of God. When he talks about worthless men, he's got in mind those who have actually risen up in opposition to God's purposes. In contrast to David, who is a friend of those purposes and who has actually been swept up by God's grace so as to advance those purposes. The difference is between worth and worthlessness with respect to God's saving plan, what God is up to in the world and among his own people. And in that respect, I know it's a hard word, but David speaks rightly about them. Like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. The man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. In contrast to his own house, which God tends as a tender gardener, lovingly, carefully, causing growth and fruitfulness. No, these men are thorns which are good for nothing. And dangerous at that which is why you've got to be very careful in the way you dispose of them. The gardener doesn't handle thorns with his bare hands, doesn't care for them tenderly, lovingly, because of what they might become, doesn't even touch them. No, he whacks them with iron and burns them with fire. The gardener must become the destroyer. For the sake of the garden, because that's the only thing you can do with them. So I know this is a hard word to round out David's last words. But I want to say to you, don't let the hardness of this final note cause you to forget everything that we saw before. If anything, the way David ends helps you to appreciate everything that led up to it. Because it is a stark contrast. That's set before our eyes here. In the midst of so much in this world, so much worthlessness and vanity and frailty, there is this one man that God has raised up to be a man after his own heart. Even to be king over his own people, ruling justly, fearing God, light and rain and fruitful growth even to be the first in the line of kings forever. These are the last words of David. If anything, by the time we get to the end of the passage, we should be amazed too. We should be marveling with David as well. Because the world is a world in which there is so much worthlessness and vanity and frailty. And it is true that the wrath of God is rightly revealed. If anything, we should be amazed. Not at the way David ends. But what he was able to say getting there about, about a king 
the kind of king that God raised him up to be. That's what should amaze us. Amazing grace. These are the last words of David. So, friends, that's what we've got here in verses 1 through 7. That's a, a walkthrough, as it were. Now, what do we make of this? Right? We, we've taken out our magnifying glasses. We've made our way through verses 1 through 7. We've noticed what David has to say here. How can we reflect upon all of this? While these words, coming as they do near the very end of the book, well, naturally, we, we read them and we reflect upon them in the light of so much that we've seen in First and Second Samuel for months now as we've made our way. And when you do that, when you look back, when you think back on what we've seen, when you go back and read the story of David, son of Jesse, from the beginning, and then compare that story with these last words, what do you find? Well, on the one hand, you do find that in many ways David was an ideal king. He was a man after God's own heart. God called him that. And in many ways, he ruled that way. He ruled, just as it says here, justly and in the fear of God. And not only that, but yes, he was brought into a remarkable covenant relationship with God. Again, the way God condescended to to bind himself to David with these promises that his line would be a royal line forever. So yes, we can look back on First and Second Samuel and see that all of that is true. There was a real glory about David's reign in terms of the kind of king that he was and the favor that God showed to him. And that glory shines all the more brightly when you compare him with the man who was king right before him, which was Saul, son of Kish, who in so many ways was everything that David was not. Saul was a man not so much after God's own heart, but after his own, Saul's own heart. And he ruled that way, and therefore he was rejected as king. I've described the whole narrative, the whole story arc of First and Second Samuel as a tale of two kingships. And it really is that. Such a stark contrast between Israel's first king and her second. So all that to say, when you go back and read David's story, yes, in many ways, what you find is the vindication of David's last words. He was a king like that. Yes, God had made with him an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. But, you know, if there's an on the one hand, we're making our way to on the other hand. On the other hand, brothers and sisters, we can be honest, there's tension as well as we look back on what we've seen in First and Second Samuel, especially Second. These are a realistic record. When you read David's story, you get David warts and all. He was not impeccable on the way to the throne, and he certainly was not impeccable when he finally got to the throne. After Second Samuel 7, that high point, where the covenant is established between God and David, almost the entire second half of the book is this unrelenting chronicle of sin and misery and chaos and death in his own household. 
So that when you turn to chapter 23 and you read these last words, you can't help but feel the tension. Because David's own record is mixed. It's checkered. It's a bit jarring to read these words here at the end in light of some of the things that we saw in 2 Samuel especially. And not only that, but then, you know, you keep going beyond David. If anything, it gets worse in the history after him. There were these cracks in David's reign. Over time, the cracks gave way to wholesale crumbling in the kingly reigns and centuries after him. 400 years after David, his kingly house is a shambles. Because you get to the point where it's just one rotten, faithless king after another, especially near the end, and God has had enough. And so the armies of Babylon come. And Judah is defeated, and Jerusalem is destroyed, and the king of Judah, I mean the descendant of David, ruling on the throne, he's carted off with the rest of the exiles. And, and you can find yourself wondering, what's become of David's last words now? Just and God-fearing kingship. An everlasting covenant. Morning, light, and rain, and life, and harmony, and wholeness, and green. By 600 B.C., it feels like David's kingly house has become the thorns. I mean, that, that's how bad it is. Good for nothing but to be whacked with iron and burned with fire. What has become of David's last poetic legacy to the people of God? And no doubt there were some who were asking that question at the time. Wondering. Grieving. We remember the last words of David. What is this? that we've come to. Fortunately, there was an answer to that question. God's answer. And the answer was that the kingly house of David would rise again from the ashes of the exile. And in fact, it wouldn't just be restored. The kingly house of David would rise again and be raised by God to heights that David himself could only have imagined. That was God's answer. And he gave that answer to his people through his prophets. You you don't have to turn there, but just listen to Isaiah chapter 11. And remember, David was the son of Jesse. Listen to Isaiah 11. It says this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. You see, the prophet Isaiah is already being, is putting the people on notice. This is not the end. In a sense, Isaiah is saying, God is saying through Isaiah, the last words of David shall come true. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And then Isaiah goes on to describe, sure enough, what kind of king this one's going to be. 
The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is still Isaiah 11. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. You remember David's last words? The ideal king ruling in the fear of God. Here Isaiah is saying, God is saying, yes, one day a king will come who will delight in the fear of me. Isaiah goes on, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So see, even here there's the contrast. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then a few verses later it says this. In that day, the root of Jesse, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Isaiah 11. So no, the kingly house of David wasn't finished. The last words of David would be vindicated after all. And one day a king would rise from that house, the likes of which Israel had never, ever seen. And in in the fullness of time, it was announced that he's here. And that's why I read Luke 1 for us earlier in our service. Listen again. Luke chapter 1. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The last words of David in the fullness of time coming true. The one who was raised on high from the lowliness of his birth in Bethlehem. The one who was the anointed of the God of Jacob. Anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. The God-man who came to save his people and to rule over them as their king. And he accomplished that rule. He ascended to that throne by the most unlikely means. The means of a cross. Suffering on on the way to a cross on the way to resurrection. And now he reigns on high. Jesus does. By his almighty grace, he's winning his subjects over to himself. Jesus is. By his word and spirit, he's ruling and defending them, causing them to flourish as the subjects of his kingdom. King Jesus is doing that. And one day, he will return to do away with all their enemies. That's King Jesus as well. And sure enough, he rules just as David and Isaiah had both described, ruling justly over men. Because his kingly ways are perfectly just and good. And he's working in us the fear of God, the one who is God, God the Son, reigning in such a way as to work in our own hearts that right reverent 
trembling before God and his word that ought to be true of us. Ruling in the fear of God. So does Christ rule. And so is his kingship like morning light and refreshing rain and life and fruitfulness for all those upon whom he shines. So, brothers and sisters, this is a word for us to take to heart today. All of those who who believe in Christ, all of those who, who gladly, gratefully, number ourselves among the subjects of King Jesus. This is a word for us to hear personally. I mean, the last words of David. Read these last words and read there a description of the kingship of Jesus as you yourself ought to be experiencing it. In other words, you don't want to read about Christ Jesus, King Jesus, as a just and righteous king whose reign means light and life and then come away thinking, well, that's a nice idea, but it doesn't have anything to do with me because I don't see it. I don't feel it. And, and we've acknowledged this in some recent sermon discussions. I get it. We all do. There are days when we don't particularly feel these things to be true, true of us, true of our lives. But if that's the case with you, if you read these words, these last words of David, and you read them in light of Jesus as a description of the reign of Jesus, and you think, nah, doesn't, doesn't seem to resonate in my own experience as a Christian, then, dear friend, something's wrong. And I want to urge you today not to settle for that, for that vast heartbreaking discrepancy between what the reign of King Jesus is and ought to be and your own life today. Don't settle for that. He's reigning now and his reign is meant to mean something to you. It's meant to produce in you a delight to submit to his will. It's meant you to cause to grow with respect to his will becoming more and more righteous here on earth and humble and fearful before God. It's meant to give you a sense of peace and joy to think that you have a king like him. Christian, close your eyes and dream. What would life be like? What would my life be like lived under King Jesus, firmly persuaded that he's so good in his rule, even good to me. It would be all of those things I just described and more. And to the degree that you find, yes, those realities are true in my life, thank God for it. For God has dealt graciously with you so that you are tasting and seeing that the reign of Jesus is good. And then we can be honest, too. Even at its best, the reality is that we don't see the reign of Jesus now in all of the glory that it will be one day. In the world around us now, even in the church, even in our own hearts and lives, instead of light and rain and life and peace and joy and holiness, there seems to be darkness and drought and famine and discouragement and sin. And we can be honest about all of that. Of all people on the earth, 
should the church not be a family that can be honest, where we can be candid with one another about that. All is not as it should be. And so we might be tempted to think that Christ's reign is not what it ought to be. But then take a second look at your king. Think again about the nature of his reign. It turns out that there's nothing wrong with the reign of King Jesus. It's not flawed. It's not defective. No, it's just that our King Jesus is content and wise to work out his reign until its final consummation patiently. Until the last day when he will return, and he will, and make all things new, all things right. And in the meantime, insofar as you do find clouds and drought and thorns around you, even in your own life, even that is meant by your king to draw you to him so that you you bend the knee before his royal scepter and seek his royal favor that he might hold on to you so that you press on. He is perfectly just and righteous in his rule and that righteousness means that he will not fail you. David asked that question. You can ask it too. Will God not cause to grow up all your health and all your desire? I was saying before, it takes a certain confidence to ask a question like that, knowing that the answer won't come back to contradict you. David asks that question rhetorically, confidently. Well, we can ask it as well. Will God not cause to grow up all your help and all your desire? Will God not deal faithfully with you like that until the end? Just to hear the question is to let the question ring. And in the silence that follows, your answer awaits. Yes, he will. In the end, he will have done just that. And he's doing it even now until that day. Shout for the blessed Jesus reigns. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you've given us such a king. With David, we stand amazed. We do tremble at the thought of worthlessness, vanity, sin, and misery, and wrath, the wrath to come. But that makes us all the more amazed that there's grace. By your grace, you've given us a king. And now that king is King Jesus. And his reign is the best and the highest of them all. And we rejoice in that reign because he has reigned so as to win us to himself as his subjects. Are we not the most blessed of all peoples? Forgive us that we lose sight of that. Open our eyes again to behold that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.